like Dan Webb. I mean, he's one of the few guys alive who's actually cross-examined the president. Like he actually cross-examined Ronald Reagan. Like imagine that, he sat there cross-examining a president. He's represented the governor of Illinois, represented Congressman Jesse Jackson at one point. He even represented Kwame Kilpatrick, the former mayor of Detroit. And he recently prosecuted Jesse Smollett. You wanna know why? Because he wanted to actually vindicate the Chicago police and the city of Chicago. He's been named the one lawyer you don't want to have to face in a courtroom. And he's here to talk to me. He's here to talk about cross-examination on the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Dan Webb's up. All right, Dan Webb, welcome to the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Neil, and thank you very much for inviting me, and I hope things are going well on your end. Dan, you're one of the lawyers that I have, you're one of the lawyers that I, whose name I have read and heard about for years and years and years. And um, uh, I am so glad that you're able to, to join us. You're just a legend. And if there's a lawyer's Hall of Fame, and I assume there is somewhere, you undoubtedly are in it. <laughs> well, I don't know where that Hall of Fame is, but that's very nice of you. Thank you. I know you've been involved in representing at one point the governor of, of Illinois. I know that you've taken on different uh, positions where you've prosecuted some very significant cases, including Admiral John Poindexter. And uh, there are some amazing cross-examination stories about your uh, that case. And I know there you recently just finished a, a gig as a special prosecutor on behalf of the state of Illinois, I believe, prosecuting Jesse Smollett in uh, the, the disorderly conduct false report of a, of a crime case that caught national news. So as a backdrop, tell me, how did you get started in the practice of law? Kind of walk us through that, if you would. Actually, Neil, that's an interesting story, but let me try to not, ex I'll try to do it shortly because I've joked about it over the years. Um, I grew up in a very small rural community in downstate Illinois, and uh, my folks didn't have a pot to, to pee in or wanted to throw it out of, but uh, we, had, we had a great life. We were young. Uh, I had a great mom and dad. I was in a very small high school and I got a break. The break was the following. I always had some, the, the, let's call it disciplinary issues in high school. I didn't, as they said, apply myself very well. And I had a guidance counselor, second year of high school. She ringed my neck, pulled me into her office and she said, Dan, you are gonna change your colors. You just go out there and you wanna be with your friends and you wanna get in a little trouble and you're smart, you don't wanna apply yourself. You're, you're gonna change your tune because um, you got a choice. I've watched you and you're very smart and good on your feet. You're very glib. And either you're gonna have to clean windows here at the high school for the next six months because of something that occurred that I was involved in, or you're gonna go into debate class. Well, I thought about that overnight, uh, Neil. And the next day I went in, her name was Josephine Johnson. I went into Ms. Johnson's office. I said, you got me. <laughs> I'm taking debate class um, and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, she took an interest in me, took me under her wing. Uh, she started providing me with actual books about great trial lawyers and said, you need to get interested in this. And I'll be damned, but I did. I, uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, Neil, I had decided I was gonna become a trial lawyer. And it all is because of one nice 
guidance counselor in high school. I've read articles that talk about how you prepare, how focused you are, that you are an athlete, that you're competitive. And one of the one judge wrote somewhere that you sneak up on people. And then another described that you have an affidavit face. Have you seen that written about you in an article before? A face I, like an affidavit. I actually, uh, the person that actually first coined that term is my dear friend uh, and partner and former governor of Illinois, Jim Thompson, who was the longest serving governor in Illinois. When he was, he was a U.S. attorney when I was just a young kid coming out of law school and joined the U.S. attorney's office. He came up and watched me in court one time. And he came downstairs. He told everyone, Webb's got a face like an affidavit. And uh, uh, <laughs> that's a compliment. I mean, that is an incredible compliment as a lawyer. It was. And he was he became a very close dear friend. And um, I mean, uh, that means. And how important is that to you as a lawyer? I mean, it really means because what, what we really are selling in front of a jury, I hate to use that that phrase, but we're really selling our credibility and our believability. Right. I mean, isn't that really what you're selling as a lawyer? It is true. And I don't think you should apologize for being a salesman. I have said we are the Willie Loman of law. That's what we do as trial lawyers. We are marketing and selling a product like Willie Loman did in Death of a Set. We, we're doing that. OK. And anyone that apologizes for that is wrong. Uh, we have a product to sell. And in order to sell a product, you need to have credibility and you need to build up trust of people. Uh, in, this, in our case, it's a jury. But don't I tell young trialers, don't you ever forget you are a salesman. Uh, you're selling a product and you sell products based on credibility and trust. And so you there's no question that from my early days as a trial lawyer, I am constantly focused in front of that jury. I want to be the first lawyer in the courtroom that the jury says, I kind of think that guy Webb, we can rely upon him. He kind of tells it like it is. If we have a dispute in this case, I think we want to listen to Webb. <laughs> That's what I want because trials are won and lost on small little increments uh, in a case. And so the fact that uh, if, if a lawyer has an ability to build up the confidence of a jury so that in, in, in close situations, the jury will trust me and not my opponent, I like that. That's a big deal. And so uh, that is what we're doing. We're marketing and selling, and we're, we're trying to basically build up credibility with an audience that we want to go our way. How would you describe your, your courtroom style as a lawyer, Dan? Um, that's actually a good question. I actually vary it, to be honest with you. I, I'm very cognizant of my demeanor in the courtroom. Uh, for example, I almost always start off with an opening statement <clears throat> that I'm delivering in a fairly low-keyed, firm, confident manner. But I make a point of never getting too dramatic or over the top in opening statement because it's my belief that at the beginning of a trial, Jurors are starting to feel their way, particularly in big commercial cases where you may have seven, eight lawyers given uh, opening statements. <clears throat> I kind of want the jurors to believe that I'm not over the top, uh, that I am uh, really down to earth. 
and I, I believe an opening statement, I come across, I'd like to, I try to come across as confident and firm, but at the same time, not too much of me. Now, I reserve that later. For example, I do believe during cross-examination and often in closing argument, I do want to dominate. I want to be more powerful. I want to be more uh, dominant. I want jurors to say, whoa, God, that guy Webb really came on in closing argument, didn't he? But by that point, hopefully they trusted me. They believed in me. And quite frankly, by me becoming a stronger lawyer, it makes me a more interesting person in front of a jury. If you're trying to market in yourself throughout a trial in the same kind of monotone, stable way, that just doesn't work. It just doesn't, and that's not, that's not the most effective way to, uh, to win a case. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, we want to, you can't- You want to win. You want to win. Uh, Dan, I read I read a quote about you that I swear I, I, I it was there was this quote where somebody wrote about you that you want to win. It was like Dan Webb wants to win. I mean, it was. And I and I read it and I thought, my God, that is how lawyers have to. Don't you have to approach a case? I mean, here's this article I'm reading right now. It says uh, Mr. Webb goes to Washington. And it was an article written um, several years ago, and it literally has a title in one of the, the subheadings that says that. It says, Dan Webb, I mean, loves to win. I mean, I thought that was such an incredible, incredible comment that was made on your behalf. And, and I don't think that it seems like that's your personality. How important is that when you go in there that you are 100% invested, not just saying, well, I hope it, you know, we'll see how it goes, but that you're 100% committed to the idea of winning? Well, you kind of, you know, yes, the answer is yes and yes. I, uh, we learned in Little League that it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. That was actually a very nice thing to learn in Little League. It does not work in the courtroom. It doesn't. At all. At all. Uh, you are there to win a case. You have a client. And your job is to win the case. Now that does, you have to win the case within boundaries. Lawyers that go beyond those boundaries, that engage in bad or unethical conduct, they need to be condemned and drummed out of the profession. But as long as I can stay within those boundaries, that's our entire system of advocacy. It, it all comes down to, we have an adversarial system of justice, which we actually believe works because you put these two competing forces against each other in the courtroom, following the rules of evidence and the rules of ethics and the procedural rules, but within those boundaries, we're supposed to want to win. And there is no room for losers. I tell young lawyers, if you lose the case, do not forget you are a loser. There's no redemption from that. Until you go out and win a case, you should put on Hester Prynne, the Scarlet L. You are a loser because you lost the case. I do believe in that very deeply. And I believe that's why that's the way it has to be. Otherwise, our system doesn't work. Uh, so you've got to have these two competing forces, both of whom are trying to win the case through all the skills of advocacy they have. And we let a jury or a judge or a finder of fact determine who wins. But there's no room. I mean, once you lose the case, you are a loser. And I love when I hear people say things to me in a setting like this, in a discussion that I have read 
said elsewhere that came out of their mouth. I love the fact people don't know that I, I, there's a, a, an article. There's so many articles written about you, but there's an article in which these you were saying that very same thing. Like, let's not make any mistake about it. If you law, if you came back and you lost that trial, you lost. You lost. That's it. There. That's it. And I, I thought about that to this day because you've heard so many lawyers, I'm sure, walk out of courts and say, "Well, I'm just there to protect his rights or her rights, and I'm just there to make sure the system works, and I'm just here to, you know, make sure to, to that he gets his day in court." And I, I, when I hear that, I think to myself, the, 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 the trial is basically over. How are you going to win when you're, you don't even believe in yourself or, or what you're trying to, to, to sell to the jury? Well, that's, that's my point, Neil, and you've made it better than I did. Um, if our system of justice of having adversarial system of justice where two competing forces somehow fight really hard in court, really are dedicated to using the skills of advocacy and the rules to win, there is something called truth that's supposed to emerge from that. And by the way, I believe in that. I, have, I mean, for example, I cannot stand lawyers. The lawyers I hear after they lose a case that somehow try to make excuses for why they lost. And I despise them for that because they lost because they're a loser. That's why they lost the case and that's okay. It is okay to be a loser. Sometimes the facts and law are not on your side. That's why a jury gets to tell you, Webb, you're out of here. That's what I want to happen, okay? Because, but that doesn't mean I didn't want to win. That doesn't mean I didn't really work really hard and, and work, you know, 18, 20 hours a day because it works. And that thing called truth does emerge. And there is no better system than we have in this country. And when I hear lawyers, Oh my gosh, that was a really tough trial. We got some bad instructions. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and I sit there, I, I actually want to just, I think they should be drummed out of the profession. When you try a case as a trial lawyer, you live by that verdict and you don't make excuses. Doesn't mean you can't appeal. Of course you can appeal, but you don't get up on TV and start making excuses. Just get up and say you lost. That's what happened. You lost. And that's it. I could tell you this. I would hate. I, there it sounds like there's there were no participation trophies in the web household like you know <laughs> <laughs> well you know that's a little i, look, I know i, I know i'm i'm, I, I'm actually believe, I believe in fairness in life and quite frankly i spend my life as an advocate in the courtroom i'm pretty easy <laughs> my, my kids say web dad you're pretty easy because i actually i don't i really don't believe in everyday life we have to compete for everything i don't believe in that I don't believe every time I go out and still shoot baskets with friends that I got to win that game. I just, but I do believe in the courtroom that it's important that you work really hard and use your skills and do the best you can. Dan, tell me about your, your, your preparation for cross-examination and your style of cross-examination. And the, the setup for this is that I have read that you are an intensely prepared cross-examiner. And so I want to start first. I want you to tell us about your preparation for cross-examination. Why is that so important? And why, if, if, if it is, why, what do you, why do you think cross-examination is the most critical part of any case? Well, first of all, I do believe cross-examination is the 
skill that is the most valuable skill a lawyer can have because cases can be and often are won on cross-examination. Uh, that's just the truth of what, because cross-examination uh, is the, and it's also the most difficult. It does really takes a lot of experience in knowing how to structure and execute um, on cross-examination. And yes, I believe that there are, Neil, I believe there are so many things that can go wrong in the courtroom that your job as a trial lawyer is to minimize those things through hard work. If you work harder than the other fellow and you are better prepared than everybody else in the courtroom, you will at least reduce the surprises that occur. One of the great things about trials, what I love about them is they are unpredictable. Things do happen that are not expected. Um, and uh, and, and you, that, that gap between your brain and your mouth needs to be pretty short to survive in the courtroom. But things will happen that you actually don't have control over. And the fact that you are so well prepared gives you a shot at dealing with the unexpected. And so, yes, I do believe that preparation for cross-examination is um, um, critical. I have a kind of an hour lecture I use with in trial advocacy to kind of teach younger lawyers how to prepare for cross and then how to what I call execute and perform on cross. That's a little bit beyond what we're doing here today, Neil, but, uh, but I do believe in it. And the preparation part is really important. Uh, it just, I mean, just as an example, I'll just use, I just tried this small act case in Chicago. I prepared 22 lines of cross-examination. I had 22 points I wanted to make. I knew I wasn't gonna do 22, but I knew I had to prepare 22 because I wasn't quite sure which ones to use because I wasn't sure what the fellow was gonna say on the stand. And I needed to be prepared for 22 lines across. I actually only used seven out of 22. I finally decided, but I couldn't have, I couldn't even made that choice if I hadn't prepared 22 lines of cross-examination and then chose the seven that worked best in that trial. Uh, Let's talk about what you mean by lines. So <clears throat> I read somewhere that you have a that you have a view and tell me if this is accurate, that um, if you're going to cross examine somebody in, in at a trial and attempt to accuse them of lying, that one you must be certain that you can establish that the witness has a clear-cut motive to fabricate that the jury will understand. And second, you have to be certain that you have at least one clean substantive line of cross-examination during which you can establish that the witness probably lied. So when you're talking about lines of communication, tell us what you mean, if you, if you don't mind. And you can use the Smollett example. The case is an example. It's a fascinating case, and you obviously... Um, ended up with a, a verdict that you wanted, which was that Smollett was guilty. Um, and clearly your cross-examination played a significant role in that case. Well, here, when I, I'm, I'm talking too much like a trial lawyer here, but a line of cross-examination simply means a point that you want to establish on cross. It can be, there's two types I have. I call them quick developers and slow developers. What I mean by that is that there are some lines of cross-examination that can be carried out very effectively in seven to 10 minutes. There's other lines across that need to be built and that may take an hour. They may take an hour. 
before you actually score the points you want to make. Uh, and there's a lot of them in between that. But a line of cross-examination is no more than I tell all my young lawyers, you start with saying to yourself, what are the points that maybe I should make? Put them on a piece of paper. And then you have to decide what, lot, what mode of cross-examination are you in? There are three modes. One, there, there's a, what they call the, I call the constructive mode of cross. That means I'm not taking this fellow on at all, but he does have some information that he did not reveal on direct that I, I'll get him to admit on cross and it helps my case, but I'm not attacking that fellow. I, I'm in a constructive mode of, but I got to know right off the bat what mode I'm in. The second type of cross is called the destructive mode of cross and it has two, two types of it. They're both unrelated. Uh, one type is to say, the witness has given false information to the jury, but probably not intentionally. Just confusion, a bias, sticking by their guns, whatever the reasons are, they are giving information to the jury that you have to tear down, but you don't have to prove they're a liar. You don't have to do that. You have to prove that they're mistaken. That's a lot easier to do. The third line of cross is what I call the destructive mode where you are taking the position the witness is lying. The question you just asked, Paul, yes, if you're going to take the, what I call the witnesses lying mode, you got to know in advance you're going to do it. And the only way you can do it is you have to start with a biased line of cross to show the jury the person might lie. Doesn't mean he did lie, but you've got to, if you don't have a motivation to lie, go home. Take a different mode of cross. That's not going to work. Okay. So you need and lines across on bias are quick hit. Bam, right off the bat. Smack that guy right across the face. Give me an example. Well, the most obvious example would be where someone is, has uh, 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 cooperated with the government. I'll take it, okay? They have cut a deal with the government, and they're getting a sweetheart deal. And anyone knows you will lie to save yourself time in jail. That's pretty easy to get across. Everyone will lie to save. There's no one on earth that won't lie. Everyone will lie to save their save time in jail. Everyone will. That's just life. That's called a clear bias motive. A lot of times it's not quite as clear cut as that. But uh, for example, in the Smollett case, he was the defendant in the case. He had an entire career that he's trying to rebuild. He had a lot at stake. That's called motive to fabricate. And so I had that built into uh, the case. But that line across has to succeed. When you get done with that line across, the jurors have just heard the person's direct for four hours or two hours. Now you started to plant a seed. That first line across plants a seed. Maybe the witness might lie. Doesn't say that he or she did, but you clearly milked and established a motive to lie. That's all you're trying to do there. You're trying to have a jury say, ah, I, I think maybe I should have slowed down a little bit about that witness. Mr. Webbs pointed out to me, this witness might lie. Maybe he's going to make a lot of money off this case. Maybe he's going to save time in jail. Maybe he's going to be a better friend of his family, whatever. There's all kinds of reasons that jurors will accept as being potentially uh, a motive to fabricate. That's all you have to do. Once you got that first point down, the next point on cross has to be a quick hitter that he did lie. You, you just can't suggest that maybe he'll lie and then come back to it an hour later 
you got to show the jury he did lie. Uh, and that second line across, once you once you succeed on those two lines across, he might lie, got a motive. Number two, I gave you an example where he did lie. Now let's go on for another three hours and let's talk more about this. But you're off on the right start. And that's what I believe you have to do if you're going to go into what's called the destructive mode across witnesses lying. Now, when you say destructive, let's be, I get the sense from that you're not someone who starts screaming and yelling in the courtroom. So you don't mean destructive as in terms of like the, your anger or anything. You're talking about just the, the goal of this cross-examination is to destroy this witness's credibility. You're going to get nothing positive from this person. It's just to tell you that they are a complete negative to this case. Well, that's not entirely true. There are some witnesses who you start in the constructive mode because you do know from prior testimony, they have three or four things to say that helps you. And sometimes, it's some, not always, but sometimes it varies. I will start with that just because the fellow doesn't hate me yet. Uh, it might cough up some goodies okay and so i sometimes will but that's that's only that's usually like this this small a, a few points but 95 percent of my cross is in the destructive mode just yeah you know, and i'm not meaning you're not going to be screaming and yelling you're trying to show a jury that the witness intentionally gave you intentionally gave you false information and therefore you really can't count on this witness for much of anything because they are a liar but you don't go into that mode unless you think you can succeed. And that does require those first two lines across to work. The motive has to work. And that first line across after the motive has to suggest the witness did lie. Classic case. Yeah, Rick, yeah please. Tell as, me. A defense lawyer, as a defense lawyer, I love to start by showing the deal they cut with the government. And because every deal they cut with the government is a motive to fabricate and pretty big. The second one, if you've got a clear-cut lie, often the witness at least originally lied to the FBI, I'll say, okay? They lied to the government, and then they got religion. Ah, so then I proved that they will lie, okay? Because the people that will lie, lie, okay? And once you prove that they will lie, that does hurt their credibility. They may have gotten religion, and they're going to tell the jury, oh, but I've got religion now. I won't lie anymore. Uh, you're, you're on your way. So, but you need both of those to marry together. I've read somewhere that you began a cross-examination um, of, a, of a judge in a case in which you were, um, you started the cross and I want you to tell us the story. And about a half an hour into it or towards the end of the day, you didn't like the way that the cross-examination was going and you changed it overnight and probably spent up all night retooling it. And the next day it was devastating. Yeah, I can tell you the story, and that's just a matter of judgment, okay? <clears throat> in that particular case, as U.S. attorney in Chicago, we had indicted a lot of judges for, for uh, judicial corruption. Uh, this was the first judge to ever go to trial on one of those cases. Uh, it's called the Graylord Project. I was the U.S. attorney, but decided to try the first Graylord case because we didn't know if jurors would convict judges. We really didn't know whether a man or a woman who wears a robe comes into a courtroom, gets elevated up on a pedestal, has all the power of our, in, our, in our, our, government, our government structure. Those folks are powerful. I didn't know 
whether a jury would be interested in convicting a judge. And I was a little bit afraid of coming on too strong. So that judge's name was Murphy. It was the first judge, to, if I lost, by the way, if I lost that case, the project's over. As trial, we're not into self-abuse as lawyers. I was the US attorney. I get to indict who I want to indict. If I could not convict judges, I was not gonna keep indicting them, trust me. I know what it's like to go in front of the cameras after you lose. So I had, if we couldn't win that first case, we weren't gonna continue. So I wanted it to go well. And I started my cross for the first 45 minutes in a respectful way because I thought judges deserve respect. I came down to my office after I still just getting started about 45 minutes into the cross. And I'm in my office, I, lock, I shut the door to kind of work on my cross and the knock came on the door and my two uh, trial assistants, lieutenants walked in, both of whom were great lawyers. They sat down across from the desk and I thought, this is not gonna be good. <laughs> anyway, they told me candidly, Webb, you're not being Webb. What are you doing up there? This guy's a jerk and he's a liar and you're treating him with kid gloves. I said, well, give me time. No, Webb, you have no more time. He's building up a head of steam. You're trying to pretend like you're some nice guy up there. He's a liar and you're not doing your job, Webb. And I did, I stayed up all night. I rejiggered the whole cross and it went very well the next day. But we, by the way, we will make those mistakes as trial lawyers, trust me. We make judgment calls. I sometimes have slacked off on somebody's wife because I don't, I think wives deserve respect. I wonder whether jurors are gonna like me if I beat up on the wife who gave, who, you know, did something that's given a favorable testimony. Uh, but you gotta be careful on that, okay? Because um, it just, there's judgment calls we make as trial lawyers and they told me I was making a mistake. And by the way, it happened again later. I was cross-examining President Reagan in another case years later. Uh, and uh, I got up. I, I had a deal with Reagan's lawyer that he was going to stay on his paper. By that I mean he was going to stick with his earlier testimony. And that I, anyway, I cut a deal that he was the president. Uh, he did appoint me as U.S. attorney. Uh, and I didn't have to take unreasonable chances. And I had a deal, I thought, with his lawyer. And um, I was going to, I could go easy. And he's going to stay, he's going to stay with me on paper. What he said, but he didn't do that. Uh, and people since then, this thing's played on C-SPAN all the time, what happened. Some people say that President was in early stages of Alzheimer's because he couldn't remember people's names and things. I don't know that. I certainly, no one knew it at the time, but I got up for 45 minutes and I clearly screwed the pooch. Uh, I just, and I came down afterwards. I didn't even need someone to tell me. I could not treat the president with kid gloves. And I got back up the next day and I went blister ups and uh, it went very well. And I, I won that trial. Um, so let me but, break that down. So you started the cross-examination of president Ronald Reagan, believing that certain things were that there was, he was going to approach a certain, that he was going to testify a certain way. And then on top of that, you believed that he was entitled to a certain amount of deference and more than the usual deference you might give somebody who's testifying. And then you said you got done and then- yeah, Correct. The first part is true. 
I thought that he was going to give me certain things without a fight that I thought I had a deal on and he didn't. So he flipped me. Uh, the, the second part, yes, I did believe that someone who's been president of the United States deserves respect. I did, I did believe that. Uh, it didn't carry quite as much weight as the deal I thought I had, but it carried weight. So what happened? So the next, you went back and you thought the, the, the objective of winning the trial, of obtaining the result you believe was just, was clearly something that you, you couldn't do, you couldn't get there. And at least in your own gut, you couldn't get there by just continuing to play footsie with, with President Reagan. So you had to take a different course. And so, and, and what did you do differently? By everything. I had, I, I had structured a three-hour cross on patty cakes. That's what I had structured. In fact, we were all flying back to D.C. that night because we had to start trial the next week. And we we're doing Reagan in a sealed courtroom in Los Angeles. First time a former president had to testify in a criminal case. It's kind of, and, and there, plus we had high ranking national security issues that we couldn't let the public into the courtroom at that time because of, of uh, you know, of, of confidential national security information. And it was an unusual situation. I thought I can get out of LA easy. He's gonna give me certain admissions that he's already given me earlier. I'm gonna be okay. I don't need him to win this case. Admiral Poindexter needed him. I didn't, uh, the defendant. Um, and I made a strategy call. But things change. That's what happens on in trials. Things change. And I just quickly went to a sidebar and I said to the judge, we're not going to go home tonight, Your Honor. I'm going to change my cross. This is not going the way. And the judge knew it. And I said, uh, I want to take a 10 minutes. I had 10 minutes to go. I'll finish the next 10 minutes and we're going to come back tomorrow. And the judge said, yes, but I had prepared a soft cross. So I said, I didn't go to bed that night. I stayed up. I just redid it all, redid it all, knowing that I was in a different ball game and it took a lot of work. Uh, soft cross to those that are, are not lawyers or not skilled cross examiners to, to explain what is the, you mean by soft cross? Soft cross is that you, you know you've got six points that the witness will let you have. Uh, the witness is on paper, by that I mean interrogatory answers or deposition where he's given it to you. And there's too much risk to go hard because the jury may resent it and you don't need it. That's just a judgment call of structuring a soft cross so that you get what you need. Uh, you don't run any unnecessary risk and you're positioned very well when it's over with. Uh, and by the way, that's a very good strategy sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that strategy. Um, that's why I love cross-emination because there are so many judgment calls that you have to make. Um, and sometimes you have to make them on the fly. Well, how do you rely on your gut, Dan? Do you trust your gut? Do you always trust it? Has it ever misled you in the middle of a trial? Are you comfortable relying on your gut as you're kind of, I think there are lawyers out there that they don't even know how to, how to dial in how to feel the moment. And that really creates a real problem for them because they're just stuck on their notes. Well, you can't stuck in your notes because things happen too quickly. Do I trust my gut? <coughs> Absolutely trust it. Um, well, I'm gonna just give you an example. This just happened in the Smollett case. The press played it up a little bit. I was cross-examining Mr. Smollett about the fact that he had planned out a hoax crime 
with uh, these two brothers and one of the brothers he was close to and they had planned to do the attack that night in Chicago, but Smollett had to be in New York, but he was gonna be back in time to do the attack, the fake attack at 10, 10 p.m. He got delayed on a plane. For the next four hours, Smollett was sending Instagram message after Instagram message to, to the, my witness, making sure he knew what was going on. They don't say we're gonna, we're gonna delay the fake attack, but clearly, Smollett was sending Instagram messages to my, to my witness. And I was accusing him of doing it to update him on the time so they could change the time of the fake attack. While I'm doing that, Mr. Smollett got angry. One, some of the Instagram messages use the N-word. They're both black and they called each other with the N-word. Uh, and I, like you do on cross, you control the witness. So I was reading off the Instagram message to Smollett saying at, at 9.58, you sent this message where you said, and I, went, I read off the, the foul word, the awful word, the N word, and the rest of the sentence. And after I did this for about 10 minutes, Smollett got angry and turned on me and said, you're mispronouncing that word. And you're a racist. Mr. Smollett quickly turned on me and said, you're mispronouncing pronouncing the n-word implying i'm a racist and I, within an nanosecond i said to him sir i do i walked towards him and i said i apologize i did not mean to mispronounce that word and he said well you are and i said i'll tell you what we'll do i don't usually do this but i'm going to let you read it why don't you tell the jury what words you used and i turned the tables on him and all of a mm. sudden he found himself reading off the uh vile word that he was using in referring to people in this email. Uh, and quite frankly, <clears throat> a lot of the media thought that was a nice technique. That happened because of my gut instinct that I should apologize because I obviously had blacks on the jury. I didn't expect to be accused of mispronouncing a word that he used. I didn't use it. It was his word. But yes, you get those moments where you try to go with your gut. Uh, and I do go with my gut. And I think that that's so important for the people don't realize that when we're in the middle of a trial or a cross-examination that you have to get, sometimes things happen and you have to be prepared enough so that you can deal with it. You have to trust your instincts and your gut. I can't tell you the number of times that we've gone over stories with lawyers like you, others that tell us the same thing inside and out. You can't do this with your face buried in your notes, just turning the page, looking, this is a live drama. It's taking place live. And, and in a moment, you just told us, Dan, about how in one moment you turned something that could have been, uh, um, could have been very ugly, where a witness is being combative and is taking advantage of something and making an accusation against you, which is unfounded, using his own words. And you said, okay, I apologize. I, I never want to be in this position. I'll tell you what, Mr. Smollett, you read it. They're I your words. Yeah. You pronounce it exactly. You pronounce any of the words the way you want. Go ahead. And all of a sudden, That's all of the, 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 it's like a tennis match. You just, you just actually made him chase down a ball in the bet, you know, a, a, a baseline winner. He's now got to chase it down. And the jury's all watching him now, which so I that, think is brilliant. So, Neil, you're right. We all have to, but you're correct that you do have to kind of go with, you cannot predict every, particularly on cross, 
when you're on cross, you are cross-examining someone who's dangerous. This person is someone who's trying to harm your case, somebody who is doing everything they can to devastate your client's position. So you know they're gonna harm you if they can. And so for you to think that they won't try to harm you is crazy and you can't prepare for everything. No matter how much you prepare, the unexpected happens. And you do have to, when I say go with your gut, you have an nanosecond, you have one nanosecond to figure out what to do, but you can't sit there looking at your notes or hesitating, you gotta move. And that's what you have to do. Dan, I'm gonna deviate from a second to ask, because I know that you generally now, you're you're in private practice and a very prominent lawyer, um, have represented some of the congressmen, athletes, you name it, all across the board. Why did you take on the the Jesse Smollett case? To why did you why did you ask or allow or um, to to be appointed special prosecutor in this particular case? If you don't mind me asking. No, that's fair. Uh, well, I didn't ask for it because, by the way, I have been a, I've been in private practice for thirty five years now, but on seven different occasions, either the federal government or state government have come to me to be a special prosecutor, and I have done it over the past because I get bored easily and I tilt at windmills. That means <laughs> I like to do things that are interesting. I have a great law firm that supports my windmill tilting. Uh, and I've been very happy to be in a firm that puts up with me. Uh, I got the court system here through a judge, a judge ordered a special prosecutor to be appointed in the Smollett case. The reason the judge did it is because the Smollett case <clears throat> was uh, resolved by the Cook County State's Attorney after indicting the case. The case was dismissed out of nowhere, dismissed, no punishment, no guilty plea, no restitution, nothing, okay, just let go. And this judge concluded and wrote in his opinion that a special prosecutor needed to be appointed to restore the public's confidence in the Cook County judicial system. Well, first of all, he came to me and asked me to do it. I originally said no for several reasons. And they came back a second time and I talked to the firm and we decided to do it because I did believe that there was clearly a sense in Cook County that there were two systems of justice. One was for the ordinary person and the other was for more privileged people like Jesse Smollett. I thought that was wrong. Number two, I'm a big defender of, the, of this city. I believe in this city. I believe in the Chicago Police Department. Contrary to what the right wing and the left wing at the national media want to spew out of their mouths about Chicago, we are a great city. We govern ourselves very well, thank you very much. We have some serious issues with gang problems, but we have a great police department and the police department became the victim of Smollett's wrongdoing. And so I saw it an opportunity to help restore the public confidence in the judicial system, but also to, I wanted, I wanted to stand up on a pedestal and say thank you to the Chicago Police Department because they did a great job in this case. And so I, I agreed to do it and uh, it worked out well. I was glad I did. Good so. Well, I mean, look, I when I was the prosecutor, I did a large number of <coughs> uh, public corruption prosecutions and white collar crime cases. <clears throat> They're all the same, I mean, the sense that there's critically important CEOs of companies uh, uh, presidents of companies, uh, people that make decisions, uh, you know, for governmental entities. So I don't really look at the fact that someone's prominent 
the structure and the, the impl implementation of a cross-examination can be the same in any case. You've got a witness that goes on the stand that is committed to damaging your client's case. And you need to do your best you can with your skills you have to structure, prepare a cross, and then carry it out, execute it with the skill to cause the jury to believe that they want to side with you. And uh, the actual importance of the witness, I mean, as far as stature or prominence, whatever it is, really doesn't affect that preparation. It's, it's all the same, it's just a matter of learning how to learn how to design cross-examinations that have a chance at working, deciding which lines across to really use, and then implement them as well as you can. Well, uh, do you ban, it sounds like in some cases where you have lines of cross, you may choose not to go, you may not, you choose not to use them. Tell me about that. Well, every, every, well, this one, Smollett, I just, I think I said I did 22. Yeah, 22 and you use seven. Seven. So that's, that gives you a good, that's pretty typical of cases where you don't, I decided what worked with Smollett is that after I heard his direct, because I didn't know what his direct was going to, I didn't know what he was going to say. Okay. I, I, I won't get into the details, but he had different ways he could go with his direct exam and he went in a certain direction. Uh, and uh, which by the way, without boring at the details, the direction he chose to go in, I decided would be a very good line of cross because here's what he did. I won't, I don't want to get too far into it. Smollett decided that he was going to contend that he got, had a sneak attack on him by two people he did not know who they were. That's what he said, okay? The jury had just sat in this courtroom for seven days, seven days. They heard the testimony of the two brothers who testified in detail how they planned out this attack how they knew whether to be at a certain location, at a certain obscure location, at a certain time at two o'clock in the morning to do a sneak attack because they planned it out that way. And he knew the brothers. He was close friends with one of the brothers. So I kept saying, let, let, me, get this, let me get this straight. You sat here for seven days. You told this jury, you heard the testimony of the two brothers. And I just, I said, they came this way, they got out of the car here, they went down this street, then they went down here, they hid out here, they got you here. Are you telling me that after you heard, and, and he, he, you told the police you thought they might be white. I said, you know the brothers are not white, they're African-Americans, you know them both pretty well. Are you telling the jury that everything they just heard for seven days and all the police testimony, the police testimony corroborated the brother's testimony, that they were the ones that did it. There was no doubt in the juror's mind these brothers did the attack. And Smollett told the jury he didn't know who did the attack. And I thought that I cross-examined him on that very early on, just because common sense told me the jury's never gonna buy that. Never in a million years. It just was not the right approach for him to take, my judgment, uh, and it worked. It just sounded ridiculous. And then he said that the reason he went out at two o'clock in the morning in Chicago was not because he was supposed to get attacked. He went out to buy eggs, eggs from Walgreens that was closed because it's not a 24 hour day Walgreens. He lived in the neighborhood. I said, get, let me get this right. You say you went out of your apartment at two o'clock in the morning in a, a, a polar vortex 
one of the coldest days in Chicago's history. You went out to go buy eggs because you're going to work out the next morning. And then you decided the only place to get eggs is at a Walgreens that's closed and you live in the neighborhood. I'm sorry. Is that what you're telling this jury? And I later called it, called it the eggs defense in closing argument because I thought that was a ridiculous explanation for what he, why he was out there in the middle of the night. Uh, and but and it, I, I have read that you are known for pursuing witnesses who are evasive. When they try to evade and don't answer, like it sounds like he was trying to give, sounds like Smollett was trying at times to not answer yes or no and to give you the runaround. What did you do when he was doing that? Wait, let me back up. So I do agree. I teach trial advocacy and I teach all young lawyers. Cross-examination is called the art of pursuit. You will never get what you want unless you absolutely pursue the witness. You have to evaluate, evaluate every answer you get. And when you don't get your perfect answer, and you know you can get it because you've got him already down on paper or some prior testimony, do not give up. Just listen and keep pursuing. And you will not stop until you get the answer you want. And you have to do that over and over and over and over again. That's what Cross is all about. Uh, and uh, now in real practice, I sometimes let up a little bit because I, I can tell the jury is going my way and I don't have time to perfect every damn question and every answer because I'm on a roll, okay? I mean, cross-examination is one time when I do know that I am rolling, okay? And when you know you're rolling, I sometimes don't slow down. I just keep a, a fairly rapid pace, as I call it, uh, so that all of these rules that we try to teach people, like the art of pursuit, which I do believe in, do I always follow those rules in every cross? I do not because I don't believe I can be an effective advocate. You got to know what the rules are and then you got no one to violate them, at least in my judgment. Dan, tell me the, when you got done with the, the Smollett trial, um, the, the, what's, I, I read so many things about your cross-examination of Smollett. I, 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 to me, it looked like his credibility was absolutely destroyed when he continued to try to like, he threw in the MAGA thing and he threw in the attack and that the, that he was somehow the 911 call. I mean, I, I'm listening to all that and it sounds like you just dissected that piece by piece and revealed it to either be untrue or that it just, uh, it just defied logic. So how long was the cross of Jesse Smollett? And when did you know that you were done when you said, you know what, I've got 22 different lines that I'm gonna pursue, but I've, I've done seven and I've got them. Well, I kind of knew, I kind of knew where I thought I was gonna stop. I didn't have to stop there, but I knew, and I had, I went about five hours, which is long for me, but I had a lot to cover with him. Uh, and some of these took a little time. Okay, for me to try to show the jury how ridiculous his testimony was required me to ask. I had to build, I had to, I kind of had to build the house up, okay, for the jury to see the whole house before they judged me on it. Uh, and so some of those are what we call slow developing lines across. Uh, and it took some time. Uh, but I did, I knew the last, the last line of cross I saved. You always save one for last. Uh, now, by the way, if it doesn't work, you can then pull another one in. <laughs> funny more I could make last. But I did, I did, uh, I did save one to the end, which which was kind of this egg story. I call it the egg story. I saved that for last, and uh, 
I could tell from, I do watch the jury when I'm cross-examining, I'm watching the jury a lot. I'm watching the, I, I think I know who the leaders are. You do these things as trial lawyers. I figured, I figured who my leaders were uh, and I'm watching them and I'm talking to them because uh, they will carry the jury. Uh, all jurors, 12 people, you'll have, you can have five leaders and seven followers and you get 12 people, you win, okay? I mean, that's just the way jury trials go. I was watching the leaders on the jury and I thought I had scored pretty big in that last line across. And you learn that it wasn't, I, 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 I had done all I could do and I'd been up there a while. Uh, what was so the sign? So, because I, I know that there are some lawyers that I've watched cross-examine and they misjudge when they've, when they've, when they've got the witness. I've seen some go on too long. They gild the lily and give the witness a chance to come back or they, I've seen others who um, they watch the, the jurors. Um, how did you sort of, how did you, could you tell that the jurors were, were the ones that you were trying to get through? How could you tell that they were at a point where you felt comfortable sitting down and being done cross-examining Jesse Smollett? Well, there's a lot of, look, a lot of things to have. Some of it's just judgment. I mean, it's not, I, I usually have a pretty good sense of whether a good, whether a given line across scored big in the middle or didn't score much at all. I, I make these judgment calls as I'm going along. Uh, and sometimes you think something's going to be big and it's not, uh, it just doesn't. The witness diffuses it somehow. Uh, this last line across, I had, I really, I worked really hard on that line across. I knew how the questions were going to flow. I knew what I wanted my rhythm and cadence to be. Uh, now, I didn't know how the jury was going to react. And so when you're studying a jury, there's things that you learn earlier in the trial. For example, note taking is a big issue because if judges are letting jurors take notes, some jurors will take notes on everything. And you don't learn anything because they're going to take notes on everything. Some jurors won't take any notes at all. Then there are some jurors that are more discreet and you watch them during the trial and you figure out those are really the ones that I normally think are gonna be the leaders. They know when to take notes. They know what's important. And I watch them and I judge them before I get up to cross-examine. Though then when I'm judging them, I'm, I, I'm watching them uh, score and whether they're taking notes or not. And I'm watching their visual reactions to me, okay? Uh, you'll get a nod of the head, you get some sign of their attentive nature. And sometimes you may see a bit of a shake of a head, meaning they didn't think the witness is doing so great. Uh, you just watch for these cues. Now, can you be wrong? Yeah, we can misjudge human nature, but I make judgment calls and it's worked pretty well for me over the years. And note-taking is one. Note is something to watch. All right, Dan. So I, I watched years ago, the movie, The Right Stuff, and I watched them talk about Chuck Yeager and Gordo Cooper and all of the guys that, you know, were part of the, the um, John Glenn. So who's the best pilot you ever saw? And they always expected these guys to say, you know, me. So who's the best cross-examiner you've ever seen? That's a little hard because I don't like go, I actually, I'm a busy trialer. I do not run around watching other people's trials. It just doesn't happen that, I mean, so I have to, so I'm limited, okay? Um, but 
the best cross-examination I ever saw done was from a trial lawyer in New York named Ted Wells, uh, who's a very prominent trial lawyer in America. We were on the same side together representing Philip Morris in a case that lasted one year uh, in D.C. Uh, involving the tobacco industry. It's a big case. Uh, and uh, I watched Ted cross-examine an expert witness. It's not something that would make headlines. I watched the way he dominated the courtroom. I watched the way he moved around the courtroom. I watched the way he used verbal uh, cues, we call it, where you speed up and slow down at the right time. I watched how he did all those skills of advocacy and it was seamless. And it was a hard witness. And when all was said and done, I thought, wow, that was one well-prepared, great cross-examination. Now, I just happened to be in that trial with Ted. If I hadn't been in the trial, I couldn't have told you that, right? So I don't, I don't know that I can tell you who the best cross-examiners are. Um, I will tell you that just what got me interested in the practice of law as a trial lawyer was that guidance counselor who she gave me two biographies, two. One was a guy named Clarence Darrell, who was a pretty fair Chicago trial lawyer. And another was a guy named Earl Rogers, who's a lot written about his his daughter was Adela Rogers St. John, that was a famous author for the New York Times. Earl Rogers may be the greatest trial lawyer in American history. People don't, most people don't even know it. But if you read his biographies and you see how he would capture witnesses on cross-examination, I felt, now I don't know, these two gentlemen died long before I was born, but I, I you can learn things by reading about people. There are a lot of books written about, you know, great cross-examiners uh, and, uh, it's, but at the end of the day, you can't learn it until you do it. You got to get up and do it and do it and do it and find out if you're good at it. Some people are very good at it. There are very good lawyers that aren't good at cross. And I can't tell you why, but they don't bring everything together into one package in a way to capture the jury's attention. Hold yeah, they're, they're writing wills. That's what they're doing. They're writing and, through the, <laughs> they're doing trust in the states. Right. All right, Dan, my last, my last question. So, and there's a little bit of a setup for this. You've obviously cross-examined, um, we know, one former president, uh, uh, President Ronald Reagan. Uh, I know at one point you were, you've written about how you were approached to represent uh, or to take part in the defense of President Trump, uh, but I believe declined for a variety of reasons. And here's my other, unless, that's, unless I'm mistaken about that. And then here's my question. If you could cross-examine one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh my God. I honestly, Neil, I'm sorry to fail your last question. I'm going to end on it. I, I honestly have never given that a moment thought as, as to who I would cross examine. And I have to tell you the truth is you don't get to choose your witnesses and trials. They're given to you. And so you learn to cross examine what's put up in front of you. Uh, and whether the person's a president or whether or not you, you have many cases where there may be uh, a, a relatively mundane witness but has gone on the stand let's say to give an alibi to a defendant and if you don't disabuse the jury of that alibi you're going to lose the case uh and you got to succeed or fail right there in front of a jury and so i'm not sure it's the fame of the person you're cross-examining i actually believe it's their importance and the outcome of the case that really matters so for the record, Dan, you, you didn't fail in any respect of this interview. I appreciate everything you've said. I can tell you are passionate about your, this, this craft. 
and you're exceptional at it. And I think one of the things that, that we can sense about it, that I can sense about it, if you'll allow me to say this, is that you've shared with us that some honest, some things that are honest about when you lose a case, you lose the case. It's not a moral victory. You lost the case. Second thing that I think is important is you've talked to us about preparation and how there's different approaches to cross-examination of any particular witness. And sometimes you have to merge them and you have to be able to change on the fly if the witness does something favorable for you or unfavorable. And then I think another really important part that's so important that you share with us is that evaluating the witness's importance in the case and being able to change the way you approach it. Don't be afraid. If you didn't like the, the tone you're using or the approach you're taking, don't be afraid to change it. Because in the end, there, there, there's, no, there's no valor in saying, well, I, I did it my way, the way I set out. And so I, but you know what? If someone says, hey, this is not going well, and in your gut, you know it's not going well, and you have the ability to change it around and to make a change, then do it. And, um, and you've clearly have, I think, given us a lot of examples of how you've done that successfully. And so there's no, you couldn't possibly have failed this interview. I am just, com I, I put you, Dan, on the Mount Rushmore of lawyers out there. I mean, you're really that good of a lawyer. And, and just for the people who are listening, you're being extremely humble. There are books upon books that have quoted different cross-examinations, different approaches, different styles, different ways that Dan Webb has gone about this job. So we're seeing the most humble that we could see someone who's talking to to me, uh, uh, you know, in, in during this interview, I will say, Dan, that I am so honored that you chose to, to join us. Um, and I, I think that your the, the cross-examination of Jesse Smollett, which, of course, is something you did most recently is is important, but it really is just the latest in a long line of successes that you've had. And so um, if people wanted to get a hold of you or wanted to reach out or wanted to learn more about what you do, how would they reach you? How would, where, where could they find you? Where could they learn more about what's going on with you uh, now and in the upcoming future, Dan? Well, I'm pretty open book. I mean, I get 500 emails a day. Some of them, I, so people can, I'm, anyone wants to email me, they just email me at the firm. There's just, I, I only have one email address. I don't have two. And so I get them all and I decide, you know, uh, but look, I'm, I'm very visible. I'm open. If someone wants to reach out or find out what I'm doing, uh, that's, that's not hard to do. And Neil, thank you very much for inviting me to be on your show. Uh, I find talking about some of these trial topics to be interesting. Uh, and uh, I, your format made it easy to kind of chit chat with you and, and talk to your audience. And so thank you very much for inviting me. Dan Webb, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Um, it was, again, I said, an honor. I mean, Dan Webb, one of the legends. So thank you for joining us, Dan. Have a nice day, Neil. Thank you, you too. very much. You too. Have you too.